thank you for, on just behalf of staff, uh, for blessing um, families, our kids. Um, we find it an absolute honor to be, to be here to serve with you, and we never, ever take this for granted. And I can absolutely speak for my wife when we say that we, we feel like we are in our dream position and our dream job and we get to serve you seven days a week and 365, we love it. And uh, often we travel to go speak or preach somewhere and uh, whenever we get in the car afterwards, we always celebrate what we had just experienced but we long to be back home with you. You are our family. And uh, we say, sometimes I describe myself as a misplaced Detroiter. Um, that was then, I'm a Kalamazooan. I don't, is that the way we term ourselves? just did it. Um, celebrate that we are family over here in K First and in the Kalamazoo area because West is best. Okay. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go to uh, John chapter 13. We're going to continue in our series. <laughs> Flashing the West Side symbol. Hallelujah. It's what Jesus would have done. John chapter 13. We are, I'm deciding to stick in John 13 since last, uh, last week. We uh, dove into the, the preliminary things of John 13, which, which is the Lord's Supper, Jesus washing the feet, getting into the dung and the, and the dirt. And if you missed last week, y'all should check out last week. We had an amazing Sunday morning. And I really wanted to kind of play off of that and to um, kind of continue in that portion of the story. And so I'm rearranging my series a little bit just because I feel just this burden to stick in John chapter 13. Um, if you take a note, you need a, a title for today. Write down the title, Find or Fix Your Flex. Fix Your Flex. I don't know if you know what it means to flex. Now, don't think of just a teenage boy standing in the mirror flexing the muscles that he thinks he has. Um, or husbands. I don't think any of us husbands ever flex much. Um, but flexing, honestly, is, is showing off what you got in a non-humble way. It's just showing off what you got. And uh, something that I have on my climbing harness is, uh, I'm going I'm to flex a little bit today. I've got these tags that hang off my harness. And what the tags mean is, specifically, I have taken a class and have qualified for a specific type of climbing called lead climbing. Not everybody is allowed to lead. You have to be certified. So I got my cert lead certification for Climb Kalamazoo. And then as you kind of go down my little tags, I've got lead certification in like three, uh, I think three different um, climbing gyms, one in Chicago, one in Ann Arbor. And so I kind of wear that on the side because it's just my flex. You know, I walk around and I am the man. I am the new Alex Honnold of the climbing gym. Not really. So, but that's just kind of what lingers there. And uh, it's just kind of cool to have that hanging off your, your, um, your climbing gear because it kind of means you've got a little bit of background. You've got some training. You've got some sort of skills. So we are in Virginia. And we show up to a climbing gym, and I don't, I'm not going to get my lead certification there. I'm there with my family, and we're just going to climb together. But they are making us take a belay test. And so it's, all that means is you're able to belay somebody up on the wall, and they're not going to fall to their death. That would be bad, all right? You don't want that. This is just a little clue to climbing. You don't want that to happen. That's a bad thing. 
So we all line up around this like little pillar. And so it's Cammie, Ethan, Ann, and myself. And Cam and Ethan just do the simple belay test. And it's not a big deal. It's just very simple. And they pass. They're like, oh, cool. And they're like, what are we going to get you a tag? They're like, oh, we get a tag for our, for our harness. And then Ann does her belay test, flies through it. And I do my belay test. And, the, and this young lady, I almost said this little girl, how old have I gotten that I'm now saying that about a 20-something? This girl looks at me. She goes, um... I have to talk to my manor, manager. I don't know if I could pass you. And I'm, I'm like, I wanted to kind of wave my tags at her saying, what? Now, I will admit, I had a little bit of pride going on because I'm like, this is the most ridiculous belay test. And so I'm doing things I don't normally do to rush the belay test. The reality is that she's thinking about the safety of my family and everybody else in the gym and things that she knows I don't want to live with if something were to happen. But I had so much time and like so much pride in me trying to flex and trying to prove something to this young lady that Listen, I know what to do. I do this all the time. And she's just staring at me with this dumbfounded look. She walks over. She's talking with one person. Then she talks with another person. They start pointing at me. And I look at my family. I'm like, I, I don't think I can past today's belay test. And they're like, don't worry, Dad. We'll belay you. And they're just mocking me a little bit. And all of a sudden, she goes, OK, let me walk you through what you did wrong. It's so patronizing. I'm like, I know what I did wrong. Let me tell you what you're doing. So I was just in this mode of just honestly being absolutely humbled before this young lady and before my family got my, got my little ticket so I could flex a little bit more and I can go back there and belay. But this idea of trying to show something in order to make other people think something. That's really what flexing all is, is you want to just show and present something in such a way that makes somebody think something about you so that you can, they can say, he belongs, she belongs. In the church world, I'll give you a better word. The word is, the word is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a little bit more than just saying well, you said you're something and you're not really that because I believe we have a lot of hypocrisy in the church. I have people say, the church is full of hypocrites. I'm like, I know I am one, all right? We all have a problem where we want to be something and we fall short. Anybody else fall short in the house today? Thank you. Got some human beings in the house and a lot of liars too. We all are in that place where we want to be something and we tend to fall short. But I don't think that's hypocrisy as much as when we're trying to flex that we are something way more than we really are, and we actually have a gap in between that. In fact, I wrote this down this week. In fact, I think I actually got this from Craig Rochelle. Hypocrisy is the gap between what we show and who we are. Hypocrisy is the gap between what we show, what we flex, and then who we are. And where I think hypocrisy truly becomes hypocrisy is not admitting we're human, but we're still trying to support an image and we're trying to hide who we really are. If there's anything I've wanted to do for years as a pastor is to make sure people understand that uh, there's just certain assumptions that come over the title of a, of a pastor and things that people think I should be and honestly things I think I should be. But there's anything I always wanted people to understand is I am just as human as you are and you're just as human as I am and we all have similar struggles. But what happens with hypocrisy, hypocrisy comes into play is we, when we try to cover up that gap between what we want to be and who we are instead of filling the gap with the essence of who Christ is. 
Hypocrisy is when we try to cover up. And you are never meant to come here to cover anything up. You are meant to come here and to be filled up. And when you go into tomorrow, you don't have to cover up for work and you don't have to cover up for your family. You can be really you. But listen, don't go into it trying to cover up anything. Go into it filled up. And almost like the prayer of Samson from the Old Testament, where we say every single morning, Lord Jesus, one more time, fill me with you. Fill me with your presence so that I'm not living in this hypocrisy, just simply covering up in order to present something so I can flex for the world and show them how godly I am. But what if we, instead of stopping our covering up, begin to get filled up on a daily basis so that we can actually not be better versions of us, we can be versions of Jesus around. People don't need your flex, they need Jesus. And this is what leads us to John 13. John 13, we read verses uh, 1 through 15 last week, and I want to invite you into uh, a few stories around the table that Jesus gathered at. Look here, let's go to verse uh, 16. Jesus says, truly I say, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, that you may believe that I am he. Truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking, so that the disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do it quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag. Uh, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving it, the morsel morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Pause on that slide for a second because there's actually some very important symbolism going on here. Those last few words, and it was night, is an actual, it's a big deal. Especially in John's gospel because John utilizes that verbiage really quite often. Even uh, the apostle John, uh, the apostle John who wrote the book of Oh, Lord of mercy. John, who wrote the book of John, also wrote uh, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and he also wrote Revelation. You know other books he wrote? None, just testing you. So John wrote the, those five books, and often you will see, like in 1 John, that that the Lord is, that we are in the light as he is in the light. He loves the light and the darkness uh, comparisons. He loves the contrast and he loves utilizing it to describe not necessarily the exact minute, but he's describing a moment. For example, John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was in the beginning with God and all the things were made through him and without him, not anything was made that was made and in him was life and the life was the light of 
of man, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness more than they actually loved light. I love this idea that John is diving into imagery. And what he's trying to portray in John chapter 13 is this is a night moment, not a night minute but he's actually describing the moment that is going on here. I love this, is he's trying to paint a very bleak picture that this was a dark moment. And that's what I love about this portion of the scripture is because it's helping us to see that there is a dark moment. Jesus navigated through dark moments. Jesus went through rough times. Don't ever believe a pastor that says you accept Christ and everything else is just gonna be peachy keen. It's gonna be great and you'll never have another problem in the world. Even Jesus, whose scripture says was greatly distressed and he was in the midst of the dark moment but I want to encourage us this morning that in the presence of every dark moment of darkness is the promise of a morning to come that no matter how much darkness that we see the the night can be as dark as it can be but there's always a promise of a morning to come we can always lift up our eyes knowing the season looks dark but there's always a morning the night has come but there's always a morning I may feel heaviness but the Lord is with me and he will lead Lead me into the place of the light because the darkness cannot cover the light. The light propels and expels the darkness away from it. And that is what we have in this season. The light is not being extinguished because we know on the third day the light came alive and pushed the darkness back. And it is in this essence that we begin to see the light begin to shine around this table. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna identify, there's four individuals I want you to notice around the table. I brought up two of them in week one. We talked about Simon the Zealot and we talked about Matthew. Uh, but I wanna talk about four, four specific people that kind of leap off the page at me. And they're not always mentioned like by name. I mean, in fact, if you think about the table, uh, I bet you most of us in the room can't name all 12 disciples. I've asked people to do that. Well, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that guy named Acts, that guy named Roman. No, 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 no. But so we, some of us forget about James Oles or Bartholomew, and we forget about others, and we think about some, some of the nameless faces. Let me encourage some of you today that you don't have to have a known name to make a kingdom impact. You don't have to have your name mentioned in order to make a, a kingdom impact in somebody's life. You don't have to be brought on a platform. You don't have to be on a slide. You don't have to be recognized to make a kingdom impact into somebody's life. But let me talk to you about four individuals today. If you're taking notes, we're gonna make this simple today. Who did Jesus invite to the table? I, you gotta mention the first one mentioned. Now, who wrote the book of John? It was John. Good, you get a Pop-Tart, good job. John is mentioned, but John doesn't call himself John. Do you know what he calls himself? The one whom Jesus loved. I'm the one Jesus likes. You want to talk about a little flex going on right there. <laughs> Who am I? I'm just the one that Jesus loves. Jesus loves me more than everybody. Uh, you know, this is John. And John, his, his, I, think his, uh, I think physical touch is his love language because he's leaning on Jesus. You guys ever had that kid or that person in your life that just sits so close to you, you just want a little bit of space? I'm looking around at people right now, nudging your spouse. Um, there are times I'm like leaning against my wife. She's like, I, I love you, honey, but you got to back away. 
You gotta give some space. I'm a touchy person. I, I get John. And at the, here at the table, Jesus is sitting at the table, reclining at this table, and John is literally leaning up against him the entire time. And maybe Jesus is like, John, you're a little much right now. And Jesus begins to talk a little bit about what is going to take place. But John describes himself, I am the one whom Jesus loved. What we begin to know even more about John is that Jesus had his 12 that sat around the table. These were his, this is his squad, but there were three that was his inner core. And John was in the inner core. There was a deeper connection to Jesus than maybe the other people had had, and that's okay. But what I love about this is who does Jesus invite to the table? He invites people who love him. He invites those who love him. But what I love about around the table is we really don't know much about the seating chart. Da Vinci, let me tell you, he was not there. He didn't get a snapshot. He didn't look it up in a blog. He tried to make some assumptions over who was positioned where. We know that Judas is probably within arm's length. We know that Peter wasn't right next because he told John. This is so so crazy. Peter, the most outspoken one, is so nervous that he makes makes John ask Jesus something for him. All right, he passes him a little note. What does he mean? Check yes or check no or maybe. All right, he passes the note over to Jesus. John... We know it's sitting there, but we don't really know where anybody else is sitting. Why is that such an important detail around the table? It's because there is no ranking around the table. We can sit around and say, I'm the one that Jesus loves. I'm the favorite. But you know what? The ranking in the kingdom of God, Jesus is the head. We are the body. Jesus is the lead. We follow. And the ranking around the table is not who tithed the most, who gave the most, who served the most, who looks the best, who smells the best. Can't we just say that it's the love of God that covers all of us and God's love is not here to rank us, but to invite us into his grace. And we know that we can love God because John wrote these words in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, that we can love God because he first loved us. You know what's encouraging about that, about being loved, is we can love back because he showed us how to love us. He showed us how to love others. And it wasn't like we loved him first and we had to court Jesus and try to win his heart up to us and try to warm him up to us so that maybe one day he can love us. You don't date Jesus. Jesus courts you. He calls to you. Come follow me. And he loves you. You may be in the house today. Maybe somebody made you come here. They said, I'll buy you a lunch if you come and listen to Pastor Dave and listen to the worship. Maybe you don't want to be here. Maybe you don't believe in Jesus. Maybe you hate Jesus. Can I say this? That you can believe what you want. Jesus loves you unconditionally and irregardless on how you feel about him. His love is not predicated on the amount of love that you give him. That you can love him a little. He will always love you a lot. You can love him a lot and you'll never outlove how much he actually loves you. But the struggle for those of us like John who love Jesus is that we can treat the table or the hospitality of Jesus, his welcoming. Sometimes we can treat it as so common and so ordinary that that which is sacred becomes just absolutely ordinary. And we almost fall out of the wonder that is following Jesus Christ. I believe that some of us today, when we take communion, need to have that prayer of David in Psalm 51 that says, Lord, restore to me the joy of of my salvation. Remind me what it was like the first time I discovered that you loved me.
And we can return that which is an, an ordinary thing to something very sacred, beautiful, and wonderful. And so much can begin to heal in our lives when we begin to understand that we are fully loved. Can I tell you how to really reach a coworker, a friend, or a, a loved one? It's to fully love them unconditionally. I didn't say you had to approve of their actions or their lifestyle or what they're wearing or how they're living or their job. Your, your job isn't to approve of people. Your job is to love them the way Jesus loved them and understand that every human being has been made into the image of God. Your image of God did not happen when you lifted up your hand and asked Christ into your life. When you were born, you were created in the imago Dei, the image of God. And what if, love, what if we loved people not based upon what they could do or what they could be, but we love them based on the fact that they are in the image of God. They are sons and daughters that need to be loved in such a way that Jesus loved us. And I bet you that judgment would begin to fade away and under misunderstandings about church would begin to fade away if we begin to look at people how Jesus looks at them and first love them before they can ever be anything that we think they ought to be. I just wonder, I just wonder. Thank you for the pitiful hand claps, that's wonderful. So number two, who else is at the table? We have number one, ones who love Jesus. Number two, we have ones who doubted or those who questioned. Who do we have at the table that doubts and question? What? All right, if you grew up in church, you should know the answer. What's his name? Thomas. Y'all get Pop-Tarts for that one. Poor Thomas. How would you like to make like one mistake and for the rest of your life be known as that person? That's pathetic. He has this moment after the resurrection where he's out, you know, grabbing some snacks. He's at Chick-fil-A picking up some stuff and Jesus appears and everybody is shocked at the risen Christ. And then when he comes back, he's like, they're all talking about Jesus. And he's like, I don't believe it until I put my hands in the scars or I touch the, uh, the scar on his side. I just, I can't believe it. I can't wrap my, my mind around it. Thomas is just very intellectual. He has got a lot of questions. And in fact, if you read the scripture, specifically in the book of John, we see that John chapter, uh, John chapter 20 he didn't believe the report. John chapter 14, Jesus is talking about going away and coming back and, and Thomas is just skeptical and he's like, listen, I don't, we don't know where you're going and uh, frankly, I don't understand how we're even gonna get there, so what's going on, Jesus? What I love is around the table is we got a man that has a lot of questions. He has concerns, he has doubts, you know what I love about Thomas is he was bold enough to ask the question. Because Thomas, sitting at the table of Jesus, know what it tells me? That your questions of Jesus or about Jesus do not disqualify you from following Jesus. And there are people in the house today that don't feel like they fit because they have questions. They don't feel like they're going to ever fit in a church community because if I admit that I don't know everything or I've got some questions about this or that. I was talking with a family member just a couple weeks ago about their son who is like, they're saying things in the Old Testament. I don't get why it or how it happened. I'm like, let's sit down and ask the question. Well, he feels a little bit awkward. I'm like, why is it we created this awkward and we want to flex and think that we know everything and we have haven't created this atmosphere that we can come to the table and realize that table that the questions do not scare God away. 
Your concerns do not scare God. That he's big enough for them. And if Jesus welcomed Thomas, he welcomes you. Can I just be honest with you? Which is a stupid question because I'm going to do it. I still have questions. I have been preaching for 22 years of my life. I've got a degree in Bible. Um, I've, been te- I've taught Sunday school since I was a middle schooler. I was raised in the church. I'm a pastor's kid. Don't judge me on that one. Um, I've got a lot of background in church. I came out of the womb and went right to the altar. All right? I, I'm telling you, this is my background. I was born and raised in the assemblies of God. I know, I know this stuff pretty well. And at 44 years of age, there are times that I've read in the scriptures and I do not have full understanding. I've had people, I've had, I've had talks with people, pastor, you know everything about the Bible, right? I'm like, nope. But aren't you a pastor? Yep. And people still go to your church? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> There's questions I've got about Leviticus. Oh, the only one apparently. <laughs> I've got questions about Revelation. Anybody else in the house? All right, I've got questions about why things had to happen the way that they happened. And let me tell you this morning that there are some things that I've read and even prayed through and experienced that make zero human sense. And there's some things that have had to just settle in my heart. I may never understand it until kingdom come and that I have to follow by faith. Because faith is just a simple tension between what is and what it should be. And it's okay to have the tension of faith when it comes to our questions. You know what keeps me coming in day in and day out in the face of all my questions? It is the fact that I'm invited to Christ with all my questions and I can come to his hospitality. I can come before the Lord and he doesn't scold me for my questions, but he nourishes my soul. It's the fact that I can come together and we can have a table here where we can all feel welcomed and your encouragement, your smiles, your handshakes can nourish my soul. It is the fact that when we come together with other people with questions, that we can worship together and we can lift up the name of Jesus with all of our questions or maybe with little questions, but we can do it together because he is the main reason why we show up. It's the fact that his love can help me release my fears behind my questions and concerns. And he can help walk me through it. And he can work within me. Some of us are so busy trying to fix people, not realizing it's not your job. But if we could trust the spirit of God, I'm going to tell you, he's faithful. He is faithful. You don't have to answer every question, but you need to show somebody Jesus. And I far understood that traveling and walking in the presence of the Lord has sometimes answered my questions and sometimes I begin to realize I should have had different questions and better questions. The table is the place where we can come and get real. Man, I fought over deaths in my family. I fought over things in my theology. I have fought over troubles in my life. And some things God has given me some great understanding and there's still some mystery that's there, but that's the beauty of faith. It's tension. And the tension of your faith does not scare God away. In fact, I believe it draws him closer. Number three, who else is at the table? We need to wrap this sucker up. Who else is at the table? One who denied Jesus. You can't talk about the table and not talk about the loudmouth. 
We got the lover. <laughs> we've got the doubter. And we've got the one who denied Jesus. We know that Peter is so, this guy's famous for a lot of mistakes. Peter denies Jesus three times. In fact, Jesus prophesied it. Hey, before the rooster crows, you're gonna try to show your flex for other people so that they don't think you're connected to me. You try to be something for somebody else and you're just gonna deny your knowledge of me. After the resurrection, we preached on this a few months ago. It is such a beautiful picture. It's the next time that Peter eats with Jesus. It is after the resurrection. Jesus is making him some, some fish fillet sandwiches on the beach. And Jesus restores him, actually walks him through three steps. And in other words, to say, you may have denied me three times. I'm going to restore you three times. Because for every way that you think you have failed God, God can completely restore you. You see, the presence of God's grace is greater than any power of your failures. You may have denied him. What I love is Jesus. He'll keep recognizing you. And you can keep failing. And he'll keep taking you back. And for every depth of sin you thought you had, grace has, I, would, I, I almost wrote a proportionate response, but God's grace has an over-proportionate response. Sin was great, but God's grace is greater. And the one who would have got invited to the table was one who would deny. Wrap your head around that. Jesus knew what he was going to do, and he still invited him. If you knew someone was going to deny you, would you invite them to dinner right before? Oh, you would, you would prepare your Facebook post in advance. One who loved. One who doubted or questioned, one who denied, and lastly, we have one who betrayed. A man who had traveled with Jesus for three years, he saw miracles, wrap your head around this, he performed miracles. How does somebody get to this place? But when I see Judas, I can harp on Judas, but, or I can sit and remind myself that that which is in Judas is in us. And Judas reminds me that nobody is exempt from temptation. So before I stand in judgment, I begin to, to bring myself to the place before the Lord and ask myself, how often has my, my own words, my thoughts, or my actions betrayed the Lord? How often have I betrayed the Lord's trust or betrayed the Lord's love by my words, my actions, or maybe even my thoughts? God has shown you someone to love, but all you can think is how much you despise them. Have you been there? I've been there. Also, should you prepare yourselves? We want to serve communion. But again, you look at these four who are four of 12. And Jesus invited all of them for which 100% of them would abandon Jesus. One betrayed, 11 abandoned. Only one would come back. Remember who came back? It was John. That's how close they were. John would come back and stand at the foot of the cross and Jesus would entrust his mother's care into John's hands. But when I look at this table and those that are invited and the fact that Jesus knew what they all were going to do, it reminds me that my future performance does not deny my opportunity to be at the table with Jesus. Jesus invites us. And these men were not, not perfect. 
but there were men that were nevertheless invited and reminds me over and over and over again that no matter if I have loved Jesus if I have betrayed Jesus if I question Jesus if I've denied Jesus I could be invited back some of you I want to give a word this morning there's somebody here that you feel like you have burned your bridge between you and God by whatever you think you've committed let me encourage you this morning grace is defined as unmerited undeserved favor and you may have burned some bridges with people but you have not burned your bridge with God he's the greatest bridge builder he doesn't look in you and build a wall he looks at you and builds a bridge and that bridge was the cross that extended love toward you that whoever would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved I want you to remember something when we take communion Jesus knows everything that we will ever do and he still invites you to the table ushers would you come forward I want to invite you to a table this morning as the ushers are passing it out I'm going to ask that everybody would just grab the elements and hold them close and then when everybody is served that we're going to partake together but I ask a simple question which one of these around the table do you identify with the most well, I'm Jesus' favorite. Ushers, go ahead, Pastor. You can talk and we can multitask here. I'm Jesus' favorite. He's the one that loves me. All right, that's cool. We're going to deal with the pride today. Pastor, I feel like this week I've denied. I feel like I've betrayed. Pastor, I've just got a lot of questions. The funny thing is, is at the end of my sermon prep time I sat back I'm like okay which one has been me this week but I'll be honest I feel like all four have hit me square between the eyes you could think if we could be real in the house today that we all connect with that we've all been there and yet it's a place where we can hold the cup to empty out ourselves and begin to identify with Jesus once more Lord I'm here today I know you love me I know I've got questions. There are times that I deny and even times that I've even betrayed. But today, Lord, I'm yours. Jesus, meet us today as we dive in and we partake of your table.